Welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, CEO of Project Purple. And today we are on the phone with Denise Johnson. And Denise is a pancreatic cancer survivor. And thank you, Denise, for joining us on our Project Purple Podcast here in the studio. I've got our producer, Sam, and I also have our CrossFit coordinator, uh, extraordinaire, Vin Camp. Uh, who runs our CrossFit. And uh, I know we're gonna get into a little bit of that, Denise, because I know uh, you, you do some stuff with CrossFit, which we're really excited to hear about being a pancreatic cancer survivor. Um, but before we get into that, Denise, for our audience at home listening, um, give them uh, as much background as you want about yourself, where you live, uh, what you do, or you know maybe to what, what you were doing before you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. and. Feel free to share anything that you'd like, family-related, kids, spouse, work, anything that you feel that you want to share with our audience at home. Okay. Well, first off, I want to thank you for having me on your uh, podcast and allowing me this opportunity to share my story. Um, I'll let you know that I'm originally from Iowa, born and went to school there all the way through college, and after graduating from college, was married, and my husband had got a job in Kansas City, and that's how we ended up in Kansas City. Kansas City split in two, Missouri and Kansas, and we live on the Kansas side. We have uh, lived and worked here since 1970-something, 78 probably, so that's a lot of years. We've raised our family here, and now we have grandkids that come in and live here also. So I have three children adult children, two two daughters and a son, and from those children, I have six grandchildren that we enjoy a lot. Do do your kids live locally, Denise? I'm sorry to jump in here. Yes, um, my daughter and four grandkids live locally. The other, uh, my son and, and two grandkids and his wife live up in the Chicago area, and then I have a daughter that lives in the Omaha area, Omaha, Nebraska. Well, we ha- we have a big following out in Nebraska, and and I was just gonna say, you know, if you were born in Iowa, I just learned this uh, last year because we were in Des Moines for an, uh, for a marathon, and uh, th- that's one of the biggest college football rivalries, is you know Iowa and Nebraska. So I- I'm sure maybe you know, and and that's the interesting part of being out in the Midwest. College football is is such a big deal, you know, and there in Missouri or, you know, Kansas, I'm sure that Kansas-Missouri rivalry is really, uh, really a big one. And, you know, here in New England, where we are in Connecticut, college football is not that big of a deal. It's more college basketball at times, but the rivalries that really truly do exist are with like uh-huh. the baseball teams, like the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Patriots and the Jets, possibly. I wouldn't say the Giants because <laughs> they're in a different conference, but you know we get more of the professional sports uh, rivalries. But the the college football rivalries in the Midwest is really something special and is really cool to see. And I, I've been really blessed and fortunate to be out in the Midwest. Um, I just got back from uh, from a week long trip prior to coming back from my trip that I just arrived early this morning. Um, I was out in Omaha for uh, a big event in Lincoln, Nebraska as well for uh, an event that we're involved with every year. And and it's a pretty special place. So, so that's awesome. 
the college basketball is really big. Huge. Also, with the NCAA tournaments and everything, it, those used to happen in Kansas City. This is the first year that they haven't, I think, the first year that they haven't been here in Kansas City. But, uh, we, yeah, we followed some college football and college basketball both. So. That's awesome. And so, uh, how old are your grandkids, like, age-wise? My oldest grandson graduates this coming week from high school. He's 18. Wow. So that's got to be pretty special to see that moment, though, Denise. Yes, it will be. Talk to us a little bit. Now, I, I thank you, first of all, for sending over your bio. But, excuse me, what... um. I'll go through how you were diagnosed and I was reading through your bio, but I, I'd love to, you know, hear that from, you know, the, the community at home listening, like, you know, what were some of the things, um, you know, that when you went through your diagnosis and prognosis and I mean, you, you were diagnosed in May of 2011. I mean, that's seven, we're seven years yeah, here. Seven you know, years which is, yeah. Which is really amazing. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the, the beginning of that and, you know, maybe bring this, you know, fast forward, you can take as much time as you want and fast forward that to where you are today. Okay. Okay. Well, seven years ago, I had a brand new, a, a brand new grandbaby. That right. Yeah. She must be seven now. Anyway, um, had a brand new, a brand new grandbaby and we traveled down to Texas to see this new grandbaby. And you know, that was before she was born. And I wasn't feeling really well. I'd gone down to help get her room prepared and, and some things like that. And I just wasn't sleeping at night and wasn't being regular. But I thought, that's eh, because I'm traveling. So I came back home and went back to work and I started itching. And I itched all over horribly. I do have allergies and I have rashes at times and there's times when I itch. So I took my regular um, allergy medicine and it didn't help. I took my prescription allergy medicine and it didn't help. So I called my doctor and I said, I need to get in to see you. I'm having terrible problems with my allergies. And I have seen the same nurse practitioner for about 30 years and she knows me quite well. And she goes, it's unusual for you to call and ask to come see me. And I said, yes, this is really bad. So I went in to see her and told her what was going on. We basically talked about the itching. And when I told her that I itched on the bottoms of my feet and the palms of my hand, she looked at me and she says, you will not leave here without a blood test. I said, okay, we did a blood test and I went home and she had given me something to help with the itching, but she told me she didn't think it was allergies. Two days later, it, take, it takes me about 20, 25 minutes in traffic to drive to work. And so I had left and driven to work, and then the parking lot is quite a ways away, and so I had taken another 10 or 15 minutes to get to my office. In that amount of time of about 30, 35 minutes, she had tried to call me four different times. She had gotten into her office that morning and had the report from the blood work, and, and she just says, Denise, I need you to call me back as soon as you possibly can. Don't get excited, but I need to talk to you. So I called her back, and she goes, Denise, are you sitting down? I said, yeah, I'm sitting at my office at work. She goes, how do you feel today? And I said, well, I'm tired. I haven't been able to sleep because of the stitching. And she goes, okay, here's the deal. Your blood tells me that you are very, 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 very sick. 
And I would feel better if you would go home and go to bed until we figure out what this is. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, I can, I can surely do that. And she goes, I have enough blood to do some other testing, so we'll do that, and I'll get back with you. She tested my blood for everything she could think of, all the um, immune disease, all, what do you want to say it? I forget what it's called, where your body fights itself. Autoimmune disorder. And everything like that. She couldn't find anything. So she says, come in, and we're going to do a scan, just a sonogram. Well, they could see something near my gallbladder. But they didn't know what it was, so they sent me for an MRI, and she referred me to a doctor. The doctor says, let's go get this MRI. The MRI came back. The doctor says, I made an appointment for you with the GI specialist. I went to see the GI specialist, and he says, I've already got an appointment for you. We need to do an endoscopic procedure. And he says, I've got an appointment at this hospital. And I looked at it, and I said, my insurance doesn't cover that hospital. I want to go to this hospital. So that took about a week to get organized, and we had an endoscopic procedure. And that doctor had sat down and said, this is where it is, and it's either a stone or it's cancer. I can't tell which, but that's why we're going to do an endoscopic procedure. So I went in for the endoscopic procedure, and... That doctor looked at me and said, this is cancer. I've already got you scheduled with a surgeon. And here's when first appointment. And I was amazed with the um, speed and the concern of every doctor that I worked with. I first went to, the doc, to my nurse practitioner in mid-April. And from that time, I saw four different doctors before I went in for surgery, and each time it was only about a week or two weeks in between. Each time, each doctor made the call and made the appointment for the next doctor and the next appointment. I just found that very amazing. They did not look at me and say, well, I kind of think this is what's going on, and you need to go and do this, and you need to find... No, they said, this is serious. I've already taken care of it for you. This is where you're going, and this is who you're going to see, and this is when your appointment is. If they want you to do anything special, they will call you before you're supposed to be there. And I I had a sonogram, an MRI, and a PET scan within that same amount of time also that they scheduled. So every week I was either doing some type of of a scan or test or seeing a doctor before I got in for surgery. Hey, Denise, for, uh, and I just want to, so where was all this, this was all happening at the same facility that you were being No, seen? no. So you were kind of it jumping It was, around. and that was another thing that was fascinating to me. Um, I had seen my nurse practitioner and my um, regular doctor in one system, because even though my insurance didn't cover them completely, I had been seeing them for years, and so I was choosing to pay 40% of the cost every time I went to see them. Wow. They Where, referred me that... to a GI specialist that was within their system. Yeah. And when he said I was going to go to the hospital and have this endoscopic procedure, I didn't want to pay that 40%, so I asked them to refer me to the hospital that my insurance would cover. Um, at that time, I would, um, we have KU Medical Research Center here. 
side of that and had insurance through them that would cover 100% gotcha. of most things. So when I re asked them to refer me there for the endoscopic procedure, then things proceeded at KU Med rather than at the other facility. So, and that was part of what amazed me when I looked at these doctors and said, no, I'm not going to be in your system because of my insurance. I need to go over to this other system. They said, fine, here's the doctors. So that's pretty fascinating. So, I mean, so you kind of acted like I always say, when families go through this, if you have a spouse that is sick, so if it's a husband, you know, that has the disease, the wife is thinking, and I relate this to my own personal experience. My dad was diagnosed. My mom was thinking, all right, how do I, you know, keep my dad alive? You know, how am I going to mm -hmm. do things without my dad, you know, with my, without my spouse? My dad was probably thinking like, you know, how do I make sure my wife is going to be okay? And I know he was really concerned about leaving my mom with certain things. Like he, you know, it was three and a half years that he lived and he was, you know, making sure my mom was knew how to mow the lawn, knew where everything was mechanically in the house, you know, like being able to do those kind of things. And then I always said, and I was fortunate, I was the third person. And I always tell people, I advocate people, like you need a third person to kind of help navigate through this. As great as the medical systems are, you still need that third person listening. But to hear that, you know, you were going from system to system and you, so you were your own, like I relate it to building a home when you have a general practitioner or a general contractor, not a general practitioner, but a general contractor managing the plumbers, the electricians, the mm -hmm. carpenters, the carpet guys, mm -hmm. the tile guys. That's really super fascinating. I, I, I guess for, for our audience at home listening, and, and maybe there's people in the same situation right now, Denise, like what are a couple things of advice? I mean, it seems like you were able to transition, which I commend the health network for allowing to do that. But I have heard horror stories from many people where, you know, today we go see the oncologist. Tomorrow we got to go see the gastro and turn, you know, the gastro guys. And then, you know, Friday we got to go see the radio radiation oncologist, you know. So there's constantly this like constant, like almost like ping pong that you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to all these doctors. Um, but for your experience, what are some of the things maybe that you can share with our audience that maybe made that transitioning or, you know, that experience efficient, but also uh -huh. you were able to get what you were able to do in, in a very timely way. Cause that's pretty fascinating. Like you said, like you were able to do this pretty quickly versus, you know, being stuck in the system of, I guess, medical. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I had that gave me an advantage and I would, I would advocate everyone to work with your own emotions and feelings. Don't ever let a doctor intim intimidate you. Don't ever be afraid to ask a question. And I don't care what their bedside manner is like or what their personality is like. This is your life. You have a right to ask any question. Ask every question that you need to ask. Say to them, I don't understand what you're saying. I need you to explain it again. If you can't understand what the doctor is saying, ask the nurses and the other people that are there. That's the best thing that you can do for yourself. A lot of people, they call it being afraid of the white coats. And, and people say, well, I don't want to feel dumb, or I don't want to take up their time, or I just didn't understand what they said. 
that was one of the things that every doctor that I went to gave me the opportunity to ask questions before I left. They made sure that I had their telephone number, the telephone number for their office, and their name of a nurse practitioner or a nurse that was there so that I could call either the doctor, just the office, or the nurse. And I talked to the nurses at the GI doctors probably half a dozen times within two weeks before I got to the surgeon so that they could answer questions for me. Also, I teach people how to do research. That's what part of what my job has been for 20-some years, 20 or 30 years. The last job that I was in right when this was happening was at KU Med Center. I was used to working with young doctors and people working on their PhDs. That's what my job was. So I was kind of used to some of the language that they used. And I and I, it was very common for me to look at them when I'm reviewing their papers and going, I don't understand this phraseology. I don't understand this word. Explain it to me. And that way I could check and see if they were using things correctly. So because of my job and my position, I was used to communicating to doctors. But that's the one thing that I would say is most important to you when you find yourself in this situation is communication. Ask the questions and ask again. And if you forget, call back and ask again and call until you get the answers that you need and that you feel comfortable with. Um, the surgeon that I went to, he worked in the, as a teacher for the school of the uh, medical, the medical school there, I want to say, I guess. And he was excellent. He brought in the materials that I understand a lot of people don't get until somebody else says, well, do you know about this? Do you know about this? But my surgeon came in with three different books, a book and a couple of small pamphlets. And he says, I don't really care if you read these at, at all or not. The more you read, the better, the more knowledge you're going to have and understand what's going on. He marked two pages, about two pages in each one of them and says, these are what's important. This is what I want you to look at. And every one of them had very pertinent information as to what was the surgery going to be, pictures of what was going to be cut and how it was going to be put back together, and advice for what to do to prepare and what you were going to do afterwards. And I can remember still one of the things that he said to me is, you're going to hurt afterwards. This is the way it works. You come in here and you think you're a little bit miserable right now. He says, you're going to be terrible when I get done with you. You're going to hurt. I'm going to give you pain medicine. And what you have to do is you have to find the fine line between hurting too much and feeling a little bit of pain. If you hurt too much, you're fighting against the pain and you can't heal. If you hurt a little bit, then you're healing. And you have to find that. He says, I also want you to be active, as active as you can be. And those were two of the best things that he ever said to me. That's a... And then he said, I'm going to make you feel horrible. And I'm going to send you home for about a month, about the time you're back up on your feet. I'm going to pull the rug out from under you again. So, Denise, just to take a step back. So, the surgery you had was the Whipple then? Yes. Okay. And so, I just to 
sum up this whole uh, statement, and correct me if I'm wrong, you really have to be your own health advocate. And I think that's something that I hear often. I think my mom, I know, well, not that I think, I know my mom was my dad's health advocate and he, she was the strong, you know, the stronger personality. So she took that role on. And I think, I think here in the United States, we have, uh, we put doctors on a very high pedestal and a lot of these doctors are amazing, super smart, super intelligent. Um, but there's some that are not it's just like good doctors, bad doctors, bad accountants, good, good accountants, you know, in every profession. But I, I still believe, you know, even really, really good doctors, sometimes you still have to ask those questions. It's almost. I, 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 and depending upon the doctor, their communication style is different. Correct. And sometimes you correct. have to get them to change vernacular, change vocabulary so that you can understand what they're saying. Yeah, now, absolutely. One, one mistake that I made, my daughter was in medical school at the time, and she and a friend had come into town to attend something at KU Med here. And between each um, test and each doctor, I hand-carried the um, discs that had all the information on it, and I came home, put them in my computer, and looked at them. That wasn't the mistake. The mistake was that I showed it to my daughter. And as she was a medical student, so she couldn't tell me what she saw there. She had to live with it for several weeks until I knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I know, my, I know my daughter well enough that I could tell when she was looking at the uh, MRI slides. I had gone through them and I said, yeah, I recognize that. That's my stomach. I recognize that. That's my lungs. And I could, I could identify what the slides were until I got to one and I thought what on earth is that and it looked like I had a string of pearls inside of me and I thought what on earth is that so when she and her friend were looking at these slides they came to that slide and I said that's the only thing that I can't figure out they looked at each other and said we can't either and just went right on And their reaction told me that that's where the problem was. And so I started doing some research and found out that it was called beating and that that's an indicator of pancreatic cancer. So my one big mistake was sharing it with a non-doctor who couldn't tell me what she saw. And it was somebody that was very close to me. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. But I think that's, that's really important lesson for everyone listening you know, is really being with specialists that understand it. And that's another thing that we always talk about, you know, you have to seek out, you know, someone who does this cancer day in, day out, and not just a generalist, because the cancer is so unique. And it's so different than any other. My mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor, and pancreatic cancer is so 180 degrees from breast cancer in treatments and in protocols and how people react and the sad reality is, is with this disease now, currently, you know, there is no effective cure. There's no, there's no treatment that cures anyone. So, and everyone's different. I mean, there are many centers now that are, you know, know your tumor, which is a big initiative. Memorial Sloan Kittering here out in New York, you know, scans everyone's tumor. And now a lot of the centers we've worked with the University of Nebraska Medical Center, they're starting to do that now. So, 
you know, that's where I think you really need to go to one of these comprehensive pancreatic cancer centers if you can get access there. Or in your local community, if you, you know, when you go to your general practitioner or when you meet with that oncologist, make sure that they are a specialist in this disease or, you know, that they have dealt with patients with the disease, um, you know, or reach out to the many groups that can give you a referral to those doctors oncologists and surgical oncologists that do this day in day out that's really critical to that living in the midwest like i do you have if you're going to do some type of special surgery yes there's a lot of rural hospitals and a lot of community hospitals and they do do surgeries but anytime i talk to anybody that doesn't live in a city i say you need to go and i talk to them about where they're located um, University of Nebraska is one of the biggest places where I advocate for people from southwest Iowa and southeast um, Nebraska to go to. Um, there's a good uh, Iowa City in eastern Iowa, Kansas City, KUMAD in Kansas, uh, St. Louis University. Those are the places where I advocate for people to go if they live in a rural area. Um, a lot of people said, Denise, are you going to get a second opinion? This is a really a big deal. Well, because I worked at KU Med and the office that I worked in, I knew what was going on there. And KU Med had just opened a new huge cancer center and brought in top-of-the-line doctors and researchers for that cancer center. They were working on getting NCI designation, so I knew that they were crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, and it was one of the best places to be. Plus, I had done research and having been at the at the, on the education side of KU Med, I had access to medical journals of all kinds. And so I could do my own research and look things up. And I could match up my MRIs with what I was seeing in my research and know that what, what my surgeon was telling me was probably what any surgeon was going to tell me. So I was very fortunate along those lines. I'd like to go back to your comment on know your tumor. At the time I was diagnosed, that was not done quite so much. And it's because it's in the last seven years that you know, your tumor has become an important and vital part of pancreatic cancer and what you're going to do. There has been so much research done and so many new findings. When I was being treated for when I had the ripple and was being treated the first time around, we didn't have so much know your tumor. We had gemcitabine, gemsar, mm-hmm. and fulfirinox, 5-FU. That was what pancreatic cancer was treated with. I, I may have still been on chemo, or it may have been about a year later, was when Dr. Hoffman out of Arizona got passed through a vaccine as a treatment for pancreatic cancer. Since then, we know that if we add GEMSAR, GEMSITABINE, with the vaccine, that it works a little bit better. If we add cisplatin to it, it works even better. We've come up with Bolferinox that works better than GEMSAR and a vaccine. And so we just keep finding and finding. We've come up with immunotherapies. Now, because of know your tumor, we know, oh, fulfillinox will work better on this. 
can do this. Well, yeah, there, there's and, there's so many advances, Denise, that are happening right now, and I think that's the, the the promising thing, right? There's a lot going on. There needs to be more, and one of the things that we have tried to really push in the space is collaboration um, because I don't yeah. think there's enough collaboration that's going on within the science community <clears throat> and there are centers that don't want to share their data and there are scientists that don't want to share their data and work with other scientists to do that. There's not going to be one center, there's not going to be one group that's going to find the silver bullet, but I think if we collectively work together, um, you know, we can we can do great things. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in the last, you know, since we've been in the space since 2010, you know, which is right when you were diagnosed the year prior, you know, there have been some amazing advances. I do know from talking to science, you know, the challenge with this disease is the more we learn, the more complex it gets. So, you know, what we knew six years ago with certain treatments and now what we know coming out of Know Your Tumor, I mean, we know that there are specific gene mutations that potentially could become the disease. But the problem is they there's a whole other... Pandora's box that is yet to be opened mm -hmm. about other mutations that we haven't really studied as much. I mean, BRCA, right. you know, has been taking, you know, and BRCA is the most popular one right now. And there's a lot of correlation. Well, there, there's correlation with, you know, breast cancer, ovarian and prostate. And there's a lot of work that's been done there already. So I think that's one of the benefits that we have in this disease is like breast cancer has been doing BRCA research for years now. Um, and you know, the, and you can combine, you know, breast dollars, which if you look at the numbers, it's a billion dollar business in breast mm -hmm. cancer research where pancreatic cancer doesn't even hit 200 million. So that's a huge discrepancy, but you know what, if we can utilize breast cancer research, to benefit Absolutely. our BRCA patients, our BRCA patients on the pancreatic cancer side, I'm all for that. And that those are some of the things we need to do. But there's still this complexity of the disease that even the smartest oh. scientists in the world still do not understand. You know, and so and I, it's, pancreatic cancer it is one of the most complex cancers there is. You talk about using the BRCA, but that may only affect as much as twenty percent, not even that many. I, I think it's a it's a lot less than that, um, Denise. You know, BRCA. It may be only ten percent. Yeah, BRCA. BRCA doesn't represent a big community, and so I'm BRCA positive. I learned that through my mm -hmm. own family experience. So my risk, my at large at large risk to getting pancreatic cancer in the world as a general population risk is like one percent. It's so low. Uh -huh. With BRCA, my my percentage jumped to ten percent. So the reality is, is like, okay, it's a jump, but it's still relatively low, all things considered. And they have been studying BRCA, as we said, for other diseases. And, you know, there's a, there's a large Jewish sect of the population that has yeah. high occurrence of BRCA. And even those populations, you know, with the highest risk of, of getting the BRCA gene, um, there's some families that are BRCA positive um, that never get the disease. And then there's other families that are BRCA positive that they have multiple generations and lines that get the disease. Why is that? We don't know. You know, and so that's kind yeah. of the, the challenge with science. Like we've got to do a better job, um, but we're getting there. And that's what groups like ourselves and the well, other groups in the space are really pushing science to do so. The thing about pancreatic cancer, every time we find something that we find that we can use to target or fight pancreatic cancer with, it's not across the board for everybody who has pancreatic cancer. It's for a very small percentage. Even the Whipple, which was the only thing we had, besides chemo when I had this, I fell into a group of 20% of people who could even go in and see 
surgery at 7 o'clock in the morning. I told my family goodbye. At about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, they came out and said, okay, we've checked what was in her liver, and it is not cancerous. We're going on back to the pancreas now. Mm -hmm. At 1.30 in the afternoon, they came out and said, we can get the tumor. We're working on it. It will be three more hours before we know if we've got it. I went in at 7 o'clock in the morning and came out at 7 o'clock at night. We didn't know that I could have the Whipple and have the tumor removed, and, or I didn't know. My family didn't know until 1.30 in the afternoon, and they didn't know for another three hours if the doctor actually got it or if there were complications. And that's, that's how serious, how difficult this surgery is. We talk about know your tumor. I've had a reoccurrence. And so I have a tumor now. Is it the same as the old one or different? It's probably different, but it probably has some of the sameness too. So what we want to do is know your tumor. But the location of the tumor, we have tried three times endoscopically. We get minute parts of the cancer, and sometimes it's not enough to test. The doctor this time wanted to use a needle biopsy going through my back. The surgeon looked at all of the data and said, no, it's too dangerous. I won't do that. You're going to have to do it endoscopically again. Mm -hmm. And it's because of where the tumor is located. There are so many major arteries and veins right through there that complicate the issue as well as the tumor itself. We may be able to say, oh, yeah, that tumor is removable, except it's between this vein and this artery. We can't go in there and work. It's too dangerous. Now, we do have a few surgeons in the United States that go ahead and do that kind of thing, but not very many because it is so dangerous. So, you know, it, your tumor is a good thing. It's difficult. The way I've gotten to know my, well, my doctor has gotten to know my tumor is through the blood biopsies. Because we haven't been able to get enough of the tumor material, so that's another area that has that has grown by leaps and bounds in the last seven years. When I first went in, those blood biopsies were not available or not as good as they are today. They still lack a lot. We can, if we keep working, they'll be better. But our blood can't tell us everything that the tumor can tell us. So, again. That's where we are with pancreatic cancer. And every little thing that we find, each little mutation, whether it's a DNA mutation throughout our whole body or just part of that tumor, with pancreatic cancer, it may affect only 2% of the people who have it. Right. That's what is, that's what is so, I don't know if I want to use the word frightening or overwhelming. That's why it's taking so long to find something for pancreatic cancer. Because every time you find something, it's for 2% of the population. And look how many dollars we spent to get there. Yeah, and it's going to take, you know, that, and that's where, it, but you know, though, Denise, um, it all comes down to money. And we need more money invested. And the more money we have, the more people we can put to work, right? Like it's not, it, this isn't as complex right. in terms of that. So, but the, the reality is, is we need to, learn more about it because there's so much to learn about it. But the ra- the reality of that is you have to pay people and you need money to do that. I mean, that's really 
brash and really kind of, uh, you know, dialed down a bit, but that is the really reality of it when you start to peel back the disease and look at, like, why are we so, you know, far off? Because we just don't have people, enough people researching the disease and you have to, you know, people need to be paid and you have to, you have to fund research and, and put out grants and stuff like that. So I know I, we want to shift gears here and uh, Vin's going to ask you some questions here about, uh, okay. we're really fascinated about CrossFit. So um, Vin. Okay. Yeah, Denise, so I just want to switch gears a little bit. And I mean, it's admirable how much, how proactive you are in your approach, um, you know, with your diagnosis, with researching and, and with going through everything. But I also think that overlaps into your, your activity. And what you're doing, um, you know, not just sitting around and, you know, being proactive in that approach to get out and walk. I know you have mentioned, you know, in your bio that, you know, you did Tai Chi, Pilates, you know, swimming, you took a road trip to Florida, um, you know, since that diagnosis and treatments. And then, you know, when you met Sammy Mansfield down at uh, Memorial Hill, um, you know, you're in that build program. And I'm, I'm pretty fascinated about that program and, and just you know, what you're doing or, or what, you know, kind of exercises you're doing to, you know, to stay active mm-hmm. and how that's helping you. Okay. Well, I'll start off by saying that I met Sammy about six years ago. She had a program. She worked at the KU Med Center as a cancer wellness specialist, and she had a program called Get Energized. And I had come off chemo, and I'd been walking. I'd been doing the Tai Chi. I'd been doing the Pilates, and I was just fatigued. I was so tired. I had so much trouble getting in the morning. And she had this program called Get Energized, and I said, that's what I need. And I went and met her. At that time, she was doing an exercise group mostly for um, breast cancer survivors. And she looked at me, and she says, I want you to come to this exercise group, and I want to see what you can do. And that's when I first connected with her. And then um, she stopped doing that exercise program, and I went on and, and joined the gym, and that's when I did the swimming and, and whirlpool and some other exercise classes. And then she had sent out an email that she was starting a new program and wanted to know if I was interested in joining the group. And I didn't respond to her. And we had gone back and forth because we both worked at KU Med and we just had things we could talk about and share. And so she was concerned that I didn't respond when she first sent out emails about this exercise group. I didn't even say, no, I'm not going to do it. I just didn't respond. And she called me up and said, Denise, I sent you this email. Do I have the right email with it or do I, have you changed emails? And I said, it was the right email. I just haven't responded because I have so much going on. And she could tell because she knew me. Something was going on. She goes, What, Denise? What's going on? And I said, Well, I found out this week that my cancer came back. That's kind of a funny story, too, but I won't go into that. I had changed doctors right at the same time. And he thought I was free and clear because I was five years out. And two months after, he says, Well, five years, no evidence of disease. You know what that means? And then two months later, he had to tell me that I had cancer again or that the tumor had come back. So I told Sammy what was going on, that I had the tumor. I didn't quite know what was going on. We were hoping that we could remove it surgically, but I was probably going to be having surgery and chemo. And she goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to join the group, and if I have to make an individualized program for you, that's what I will do. And I joined the group. I ended up 
pump for two days, two or three days. And I went and did class with that pump on. And what, what the kind of people that were there had finished chemo and some of them even years before and just wanted to get in better shape. They say that I was the one that kept them going because if I could do it with a pump on, then they better be able to do it without one. Absolutely. That's very motivating, Denise, to, you know, for you to show up and actually go through that. Um, but what, what, what kind of things is in that program, you know, for the, for the audience at mm-hmm. home or, you know, for other people that are battling right now that are scared to work out, you know, because of what they're going through or they don't feel mm-hmm. that strength or anything. Um, you well, know, give the audience I, I started like some... off with two pound bell weights mm-hmm. and doing some um, swings and some lifts and some squats with that two pound bell weight. Um, I'm at the point now where I can take a 15 or 20 pound um, disc and walk around the block holding it in front of me. I can use the barbells and do strict presses or bench presses or squats, loaded squats. Just about anything that is done in CrossFit, Sammy would have us do. Not always um, the full extension of what you would do and not always with super heavy weights. It would be, and she personalizes each person to be able to do what they can and can't do. She has to be careful with me because I have neuropathy in my feet and hands. And originally I was doing a bicycle for a warm-up. And when the neuropathy got worse in my feet, I couldn't tell when my feet were on the pedals and when they were not. And so she just looked at me and said, Denise, no more bicycle. Mm-hmm. Because um, my neuropathy is affected by touching room temperature or cool things, it makes it worse. I wear gloves all the time. So that whenever I do pick up weights or touch anything, it doesn't make the neuropathy worse. In the beginning, we were super careful about me lifting anything over my head. We've learned that I can hang on to things if I get a good grip on them. It's the tips of my fingers that are affected by the neuropathy, not my grip so much. So I'm okay with lifting the weights over my head and and, and doing things like that. Um, One of the most difficult things for me to do is lunges. Right. Because it's my toes that the neuropathy makes to burn and hurt. But I do all the moves that everybody else does. Right. You're getting there. You're showing up. And, and I think that's half the battle. You know, I'm a CrossFit coach. And, and that's what I tell you know, regular, you know, everyday general population you know, members all the time to show up and do the work. Um, and it, it's, it's motivating and inspiring to me to hear that, you know, you're going through all this treatment and this chemo and everything. And, and you're still showing up and doing it. And, and that, that's... That's a push for me to get to the gym, um, and I know Sammy's doing great things, and I'm, I'm eager to learn more about her from what she's doing, but I guess my, my last question, you know, would be, you know, what has the CrossFit, I guess it's two parts, what would the CrossFit community or that gym community, um, has? Mm-hmm. what has that taught you, or how has that helped you, and I guess the second part of that would be just any kind of advice that you could give um, somebody that's battling, um, you know, somebody that's just diagnosed or just coming off treatment, um, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, whether it's CrossFit or exercising or just in general about life? Okay, the, the community that we belong to, the build community, the CrossFit class for cancer survivors itself, one of the things that it gives me is a community of people who understand. Right. They understand that some days, even 
you one day you find out something good and two minutes later you are in the bathroom throwing up your guts. And it's just a roller coaster. Another thing that we know is that we support each other. If you come to build class and you don't feel as well, you come anyway. There were times that all I could do was walk around the gym. I couldn't lift the weights. I couldn't do the squats. I couldn't do um, any of the rowing. I just couldn't. I was too weak or I was too sick to my stomach, but I could walk around. And what I found was when I went, I felt better. My family noticed that too. It's like, Mom, today is uh, build day. It's almost 4 o'clock. You're not dressed yet. You better get ready to go. And I look at them and I say, why is that so important? They said, because we can see the difference in you. You will drag out of this house to go to build. And you will bounce coming back in. And it just builds your energy. That's, that's... And being with the group of people, as well as the exercise, helps a lot. What I would encourage people to do is find a group that you fit with. Go to an exercise class. Find a group that you feel really comfortable with. Find a trainer that is understanding that some days I can do it and some days I can't. Find a trainer that's going to work with you for where are your strengths and where are your weaknesses. If you're building on your strengths, your weaknesses will come through with it. Instead of starting off working on your weaknesses, work on your strengths. So you've got to find the right trainer and you've got to find the right group, but find them. Visit different places and figure out where you're going. Yeah, I think, Denise, uh, and this is Dino again, I think the one thing that you just said, and we've heard this from time and time again from all of our survivors, and I call them survivors, thrivers, fighters, so many great terms, but it's not about, and, and this is really about life as well, but I think it really resonates within the pancreatic cancer community. And it's not about being on top. It's when you get knocked down and you're going to get knocked down. And I tell families this new, newly diagnosed families, this is a roller coaster from hell. And when you get knocked down, you got to get back up. Like you got to find the people in your tribe. You got to find the community and you got to rally. And what we, if we take a step backwards from what we were talking about before, even from when you were diagnosed and when my dad was diagnosed and all the stuff that's available now that wasn't available then like that's the hope that's the promise and as the longer that you stay in this fight it's going to happen it's just a matter of time and that's the one thing we don't know we don't know when but it's going to mm -hmm. happen you know so um i want to thank you denise uh your story is so inspirational and i hope and i thank you for first of all for sharing your personal life with the folks at home listening and hopefully they can come away as inspired as we are, as I said in the very beginning. You're the reason why we get up every day and the staff is excited to work every day. This is a very difficult job and we knew that going into this and everyone that I hire knows that the odds are stacked against us, but the inspiration of the survivors and the stories that the survivors share with us and the amazing stories of where they've gone and where they are is just really something special. So thank you from all of us here at Project Purple for allowing us the opportunity to hear your inspiration and your story. 
And from all of us here, we wish you nothing but uh, continued success in your treatment. And um, you've got an amazing personality. We've never met in person, but I can just tell, you know, you've got a lot of spunk and a lot of energy, Denise, and a lot of positive attitude. And that's going to take you a really long way. So uh, I appreciate everything that you were able to share with our audience and with us. So thank you. Well, thank you for calling me and letting me be a part of your program and hopefully um, inspiring somebody else to get out there and find what they need or helping them to know where to go. There is a wonderful group on Facebook called Whipple Warriors, and I um, encourage anybody who has had a Whipple or knows someone who has had a Whipple to join that group. Um, you can always get extra support for via online. Awesome, awesome. Well, I appreciate the time today, Denise. And again, thank you for the inspiration and thank you for all you do. And uh, you've been great to have on the Project Purple podcast.